in Haggai chapter 2, the very last verses, 20, 21, 22, and 23, so four verses there at the end of Haggai. You can look in a pew Bible or your own Bible or up on the screen here. And I just want to read that together. I want to begin our sermon by reading the text. This is the fourth and final oracle of the book of Haggai. And it's to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel chosen as a signet. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord host. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, and may it build up all those who hear it now. Amen. I like to hike. I like to go hiking. And in fact, before, um, before the dad life set in real deep, so to speak, I would oftentimes just strike out on a weekend, sometimes with other people, and um, sometimes just by myself, and I would find a wilderness to wander in and just go get lost. Uh, And I know to some of you that sounds fantastic, and to some of you that sounds horrible, right? Some of you that's an ideal weekend, and otherwise, you either really like hiking or you really don't. There's usually not much in between. Uh, There was one trip in particular that stands out to me where I decided to go to the Garden of Gods in west of here in Illinois. And if you've ever been there, you know that the trails aren't really well marked. They don't really mark their trails much. Uh, but I didn't care much about that because my intention was just to be in the woods with my backpack and my thoughts. So I set off, and about the halfway point of my trip, I decided that I had wandered far enough and that I needed to do an about face and start wandering back. Except that Garden of the Gods is really big, and I had no earthly idea where I was. All I knew I was heading, I had been heading west, and so now I needed to turn around and head back east once again. So I did. I just kind of did an about face and started going backwards. But the problem was that there was no clearly marked trail once again, and everything looks kind of the same in the woods at Garden of the Gods. There, there's, you're like, oh, a, a rock formation. And they all start to look the same after a while, all these rock formations. So I went from being blissfully lost to being hopefully lost very quickly. And then I had this thought. If I could just rise above the tree line, if I could just gain a vantage point, then I think I can get my bearings. So I climbed to the top of a ridge, found one of those big rock overlooks, And I found, uh, like I said, an east-facing rock formation. And as I looked out, I could see a small place in the valley cut into the side of this ridge where the trees looked 
different. The sun was coming up in the east, so I could use that for orientation. I could see a trail now, because I think that I was like, I think where those trees are kind of cut, that's probably a trail. And then I, then I heard the sound of an engine, which to a lost backpacker sounds beautiful, right? Because that means civilization. And it coming from that direction, so I thought, okay, I've got to go that way, and that looks like a trail, so I'm going to go to that and then try to get back. And I had, I had my heading. I couldn't see the parking lot. I couldn't see the end. I didn't know where my car was exactly, but I at least had my headings. I had hope and confidence that I could finish my journey safely. So I climbed back down off of that, that rock ridge, and I enacted my plan, and within a couple hours, I was back at my car. Because if I hadn't been, then I probably wouldn't be standing before you, right? I'd probably still be in Garden of the Gods today. Much longer beard, right? Life can make us lose our bearings. Life, it comes at you fast. Day in and day out routines. Kids and families have needs. Bosses have deadlines. Bills keep coming. Skeptics criticize your Christian beliefs, your sin, and other sin further complicates everything. Just lots of noise and pressure. You've, and then you've, not on top of all that, you've got to try to squeeze in some sort of a spiritual life to have some sort of Bible reading plan or prayer life and worship with your spouse and with your children. And you hear from preachers like me that the Lord loves you, and if you love him, it will work out in the end. But often it is very hard to see a clear path towards that with all the noise and pressure around you. And if that resonates with you, I think you're going to be in good company with Zerubbabel and the people of God at the end of the book of Haggai here. They had come back from exile and floundered around for 20 years. Then Haggai brought his first prophecy telling them to get their act together and to begin to work on the temple. They repented for their apathetic attitudes toward God and the things of God, and they started building what we now know as Second Temple Judaism, the Second Temple. They were constructing that. They were working along, and Haggai continued to exhort them and prophesy about the significance of their being back in Jerusalem and working on this temple. So they repented of not working on the temple, not valuing the things of God. And so they began that construction, and then as they're doing, carrying out that construction, Haggai is continuing, he, goes, he narrows in on specific groups of people. He prophesies in his second oracle just to, just to some people, like just the normal people uh, that came back with him. And then he prophesies to the priestly class with his third oracle, and then he, now, now we're on the fourth oracle, and he's aiming at the king which he wasn't the king, so to speak. He was a governor, but he was sort of a puppet king for the Persians. But Zerubbabel wasn't, uh, when you think puppet king, usually you think weak, maybe um, not, real, not real moral, almost like Herod, right? Herod the Great, we see him in the New Testament. That wasn't Zerubbabel. He actually cared. He actually repented. He was trying to be a faithful man uh, and follow after his father's footsteps, being, his father being uh, one of the sons of David, right? son of Shealtiel, but he's a few generations removed from David. So they come back, and I think Zerubbabel, God is saying, you can do this through Haggai, you can do this, you can do this, you guys got this. And I imagine that Zerubbabel, in my mind, as I read this text and the flow of things, I bet he was having kind of a hard time seeing it. Because he was the one who, I mean, the normal people and the priests, okay, they were catching on, but Zerubbabel also 
was he was in charge for a reason. He had the 10,000 foot view. He could see all the things that were going on around him. And for some reason, Zerubbabel needed some encouragement from the Lord himself. And so Haggai, the prophet, God took Haggai and said, you need to speak these things directly to Zerubbabel. You need to say these words to him to encourage him, I think is what this passage is about. If you think about it, he came back with 50,000 of God's people to a ruined city. And that is a statement that on its own deserves some more thought. He came back with 50,000 people to a ruined city. Daniel, where Pastor Matt's been preaching, probably stayed back and did not return from exile with the rest of the people because of his high position within the empire, within the Persian empire. So he was probably made not to go back. And there was an advantage to staying. There was a, it was a well-built, safe city that they were in. They had been there for a number of generations, and so they planted gardens and started businesses. Like I said, maybe even to the fourth generation now, definitely second probably third, maybe even the fourth generation of Israelites from that initial captivity that they've been carried away by the Babylonians. They had figured out how to make things work for them, how to get along in this society that they were exiled into. So the people who were going back were in all likelihood, this 50,000 person group of people, they were probably kind of a motley crew. They were probably kind of rough, pioneering types, because what were they going back to? Nothing. A ruined city. Think about maybe, as a modern parallel, think about those who left the East Coast in the mid to late 1800s to settle the West. Rough, tough, rugged individuals. And the man who was chosen to lead them was Zerubbabel. They were going back to compromise walls, to a crushed temple, to no agricultural operations of any note, to tribal infighting all around them. Remember, not too much longer after this is, is when Nehemiah is ministering, and he's constantly having to fight. They had to build the wall with, a, with, a, with their tool in one hand and a sword in another because as they were trying to build this wall back up, people, local uh, local warlords, so to speak, were, didn't like the fact that they were trying to protect themselves, and so they were attacking them, right? This is going on immediately around, and this is before that, just a little bit, but not very much. And then uh, overall, you have Persia, this massive empire that Zerubbabel is a, a puppet king for, is breathing down his neck. Remember how they did their business? They let him go back, but they had to pay tribute. They had to maintain their loyalty to the empire of Persia. So I imagine this word from the Lord himself came to Zerubbabel because he needed to rise above all this noise and all this pressure of his immediate surroundings and be reminded of the big picture, the big picture that God was, was painting before him, that God has been painting for all of time. In the midst of the pressure to be a faithful leader of God's people, he needed to climb that ridge, so to speak, to get above the tree line and find his bearings. And exactly that is exactly what this fourth oracle is. It's that God giving Zerubbabel some clarity on what it is, how it is that he's fitting in to this thing. It's intended to comfort him by reminding him that in the midst of the pressures he's facing, God has a plan and Zerubbabel fits into it. So here's the plan. There's a tenor line of hope, a 
tenor line. We say that, if you don't understand that, what I mean by that, I'm, we have musicians, we sing a tenor line. I oftentimes will sing tenor. And when I sing a tenor part, everybody will say, hey, music sounded really good today, but they can't really put their finger on why. When, we, when I say a tenor line, that's because somebody's singing a part that's enough differently, and usually Miss Kim's the music guru over here, and she'll correct me if I'm wrong. That tenor line usually kind of it, it supplements the, the melody line in such a way that it doesn't stand out real far, but it just beautifies the thing, and it runs right under the surface of, of it. There is a tenor line. There is a theme that's running right under the surface of, throughout all the Old Testament. As you look at each individual, you're looking at the melody, right? The stories, Daniel and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and these are the main thrusts, but running right underneath of that, beautifying thing, adding substance and supplementing that thing, those stories, is this. God has chosen his people above all the kingdoms of the earth. God has chosen his people above all the kingdoms of the earth. One day, every nation and tribe and tongue and people and language group will bow the knee to the one true king. That king not being an earthly king, but a heavenly king, a Messiah king. And this is a two-part promise And it forms the meat of our text today. The first part is that all nations will be made to understand the glory of God. And the second is that the Lord will preserve his people and be glorified as king over all. So the nations will be brought low and the Lord will be glorified on high. There'll be no denying any longer. That day is coming. That's the tenor line. So the first part, let's take that. And you see that in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 2 in Haggai. Notice first who it is that's going to be handling the bringing about of the nations into submission. Verse 21, verse 20 and 21, what's it say? I, now remember, this is the word of the Lord himself through Haggai. This isn't Haggai saying that Haggai is going to do it. This is God saying through Haggai, I am going to do it. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And then he goes a little bit further and he says, I am about to destroy. The Lord's reassurance, first of all here for Zerubbabel, is not for him to believe in himself as the deliverer of Israel. He's removing the pressure from Zerubbabel to be the deliverer of Israel, which must be very comforting to a puppet king in all these high-pressure situations. And he is saying, I, I am going to shake. I'm about to destroy. Don't believe in yourself as a deliverer of Israel, of God's people. Believe in me, the Lord, what he is going to do. He's told his people that he's going to do from the very beginning. And this is it. He's going to shake down fallen creation. Shake it down. Work things out. And Zerubbabel is just the next one in a long line of God choosing and using men and women to shake up fallen creation and disrupt the sinful plans of men. A quick flyover of the Old Testament with me mentioning names, and these, these names should bring up images, and you'll start to you'll, you'll see this is the melody line, but you'll hear the tenor line underneath of it of God has chosen his people above all the kingdoms of the earth. Abraham. Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Deborah, David. 
Through these names, God has been about the business of disrupting the sinful scheming of men and driving towards something. Driving towards something. Over and over again, God is reversing the fall, preserving a people, bringing his kingdom come, and then there's pushback from the unrighteous. Then God delivers his people from the unrighteous, and the kingdom of God marches on. This happens cyclically almost, over and over and over again, as God's kingdom and his purposes march on. Sometimes God really lets the unrighteous have their day, just so that when he does the delivering, no one else can take credit for it. Like when the people of God were trapped by the Red Sea. Do you remember this in Exodus? The, the, the uh, plagues had happened. It was Pharaoh finally had enough, and he said, get out. And then the people of God got out after plundering them, and they got to the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh changed his mind and came after him with all the king's horses and all the king's men, right? The chariots, which we have a lot of chariot language here. Horses and riders and strong strength of his army. We're going to forget this. We're going to go out and get them all back. And if they don't come back with us, we'll just crush them. So they go out to the Red Sea. And on one side of them is the sea. And on the other side is Pharaoh's, at really, probably, honestly, the biggest army in the entire world at this time. Terrifying. Greatest military technology. Most men crushing up against them. They didn't stand a chance. But the whole thing was always in the hand of God, and God was baiting the prideful Egyptians so that he would not have to only deliver his people from them, but he would crush their military all in one fell swoop so they couldn't pursue his people any farther as they journeyed towards the promised land. A quick online search, think about it from this perspective, a quick online search into Egyptian timeline will reveal that they never recovered from this. Never. The Egyptian empire came to its peak in about 1500 BC. When did the exodus happen? Right around that same time. And from then on out, it was a slow decline until the Persians finally crushed them right around this time. God let them get as strong as they would ever be and enslave and oppress his people for hundreds of years. And in a week, he killed the best and brightest of their next generation, their firstborn. He took their slaves, he crushed their economy, and he wiped out their military in a week. Consider that and this happens over and over and over again. All those names I mentioned, there are in a microcosm in some instances and in larger perspective in other instances, like with Joshua when they were conquering the promised land. God looks at the nations as they rage and he laughs. Consider in context Psalm 2 verses 1 through 5. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And this is what it says about God. And this is exactly, I'm sure, what he was doing. As Pharaoh thought in his heart, I will pursue them and I will crush him. He who sits in the heavens does what? Laughs and holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them with his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury. 
So in the midst of all this pressure that Zerubbabel was feeling, God says to him, remember exactly who it is that put you in the position that you're in, Zerubbabel. God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the deliverer of the lowly and the crusher of prideful kings. You feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders, Zerubbabel, but I've been delivering my people long before you and I will do it long after you are gone. Pressured as you may feel, the weight of the world is not on your shoulders, Zerubbabel, it's on mine, says the Lord. And that's an excellent reminder for all of us today. No one of us is so important that God won't be able to fulfill his promises without us. Our lives are but a mist, the book of James says, a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. God's intention, though, wasn't to turn Zerubbabel into a fatalist, and he's not to turn you into a fatalist either. We aren't just to say, well, then forget it all. I guess if I'm not, if I, I guess I'm not all that important on the grand scheme of things, then I just throw my hands up in the air. That's not the case. We are to work and be faithful in those roles he has given us, all the while, all the while realizing that we are a part of his plan. He is not a part of ours. Does that make sense? And before we leave this first point, I think it's important to draw another application. It's not appropriate for Christians to either place all of their hope or none of their hope in the earthly kingdom in which they dwell. It'd be very easy to make a jump from this and say, well, God just hates all, he hates all the nations. He just wants to crush all the nations. But the problem with that is that God is the one who instituted governments for our good. So it would be, it would be the wrong conclusion to pull that, well, so let's put it this way. It's total naivety thinking that the government only, only does good. Right? The government, that's not true. Governments are filled with sinful people, so that's, that's, that's naivety. It's pessimism to think that the government is only evil, that governing authorities are only evil, and neither one of those is correct. I think the truth lies in the tension, and God has both instituted governing authorities to restrain evil and to do good, and also at the same time, every government is subject to his lordship, and one day it will be completely subject to to his lordship in a physical, real way. God is going to shake them, as this text tells us, until only what is righteous will remain. Now, for us, we are the people with the law of God governing our hearts and our minds and seeking to bring all things, governments included, underneath the lordship of Christ. But we don't do that by violating the same law that we are asking them to submit to. Our methods for warfare must look different than theirs. According to Haggai 2, they are the ones who fight backbiting brother versus brother. Did you catch that? That how are they going to destroy? How are these nations going to fall? They're going to fall because brother is going to rise against brother, and they're going to be infighting all the time, so much so that they devour one another. That's not how we fight. Just because you are fed up with a governmental authority lying, stealing, and cheating, you are not justified in using similar unrighteous tactics to fight back. We are to progress the kingdom of God, 
not as ones with no hope, but as ones who believe in this sure and certain promise that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we aren't trying to just win. We're trying to win them. Let that sink in. We're not just trying to win. We're trying to win them. Political control is too small of a goal. We want the lordship of Christ over everyone and everything and every heart, including yours. That's what winning looks like in the kingdom of heaven. God is going to shake things up. And he's, but he's, and deliver his people, but he's not doing it just aimlessly. He's driving towards something. The book of Hebrews gives commentary on Haggai and helps us to see this. So this is going to help us move into the next part. So God is going to shake up the nations until that, until nothing unrighteous remains. And he's going to deliver his people through a deliverer. Hebrews helps us to see this. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 through 29. And Hebrews is commenting on Haggai. He has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship and reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He is doing the shaking in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. He's shaking the nations so that the things that cannot be shaken will last. In my most recent sermons, I failed to properly attribute a source of my content for this Haggai series. Doug Wilson has insights on this book that I have found very helpful And I want to quote him again here regarding his cross-referencing Haggai in Hebrews. He says, The sins of men can be shaken, but the salvation of man cannot be shaken. I'll say that again. The sins of men can be shaken. The unrighteous nations can be shaken, but the salvation of men cannot be shaken. God's purposes in salvation cannot be interrupted, cannot be diverted, cannot be undone. God's purpose is building a final and unshakable kingdom, end quote. And that's what verse 21 is about. Read it again to you, just to refresh it in your brain. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Anytime scripture repeats something, it's because they really want to get it. The author really wants to get it across to the audience. Three times in one short verse is the phrase, declares the Lord, declares the Lord of hosts. He wants to make it abundantly clear. God wants to make it abundantly clear. This is me speaking to you, Zerubbabel. It's a personal oracle. It's almost like when a child, their eyes are drifting and you're like, hey, Right here, eyes. Hey, Zerubbabel, the Lord of hosts, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm making these promises to you. I'm trying to clarify things for you. On that day, you saw that on that day, 
is a, trans, is a transitional phrase because, remember, all the shaking of the nations has happened. So after all the shaking of those nations has happened, this is the day after that, on that day. And oftentimes, on that day refers to the day when the shaking is done and nations have brought, been brought into submission. It's referred to in other places in scriptures known as the day of the Lord. So the shaking will cease. God will take Zerubbabel, the one he has chosen, this son of Shealtiel, and make him a signet, like a signet ring. And there's a lot going on here. First, first, through referring to his father, by calling him Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the Lord is calling out his Davidic lineage. If you look to the genealogies of Christ in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, you will find Zerubbabel in both of those passages. He was the 17th great-grandfather of Joseph, who raised Jesus, but more on this in a moment, of the genealogy step. The signet ring is the other interesting thing happening. The signet ring was the ring that the king wore that bore the weight of his authority. Signet, signature. Those two words are, are very much related. It was how he signed documents. He would use it to to set laws into place and make massive financial transactions on, on behalf of the nation. It's almost like, you know, when, when our president signs a new law, oftentimes they'll have, like, he'll, he'll have like five pens and write two letters with a pen and then two more letters, and then those pens become significant, right? They, they have meaning and they People will collect them and use them, and they have historical, because that was the instrument that he used to set aside an act, to use his authority outwardly and make something go. That's the signet ring. And if you juxtapose this with Jeremiah 22, verse 24, where God says to the next in line for the throne before the Babylonian exile, right? So they're getting ready to get shipped off. This is before the Babylonian exile. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those who whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hands of the Chaldeans. The Lord took the Davidic line off as his signet ring when they got taken into Babylonian exile. And what is he telling Zerubbabel here? I'm putting it back on. Putting it back on. Now, if you take this fourth and final oracle of Haggai as only having meaning for Zerubbabel, then it would seem that God was about to bring all the nations of man to their knees using Zerubbabel himself as the king who would overthrow them all and usher in God's kingdom of heaven on earth. But obviously, that is not what happened. And, on the grand scheme of things, Zerubbabel was of little note as a ruler. You, you won't find Zerubbabel on pages of history books, secular history books, or anything like that. He wasn't, he wasn't a, a King David or an Alexander the Great. Or, he was kind of a blip. So either Haggai is a false prophet, or there's something else going on here. There's more than what meets the eye. 
prophesying at the same time as Haggai and in the same context was Zechariah, which is, if, you, if you're on this page, you can see it, it's right here. It's the next, next book of the Bible. And we are given in chapters 2 and 4 this vision that Zechariah has. Zechariah, I didn't say Zechariah, it's not Zechariah, it's Zechariah. Vision Zechariah has of a man measuring Jerusalem with a plumb line in his hand. And that man, it, it, he introduces him in chapter 2 and then, and then chapter 4, it's revealed that the man with the plumb line in his hand is Zerubbabel. I started building a pole barn this weekend. And I don't want that barn to be crooked at all. I want it to be perfectly straight. And I don't have the greatest vision in the world, so I'm, I'm pretty good at looking at something and telling if it's straight. I mean, I guess it's kind of one of those things. I guess everybody thinks they're good at looking at something and telling if it's straight, right? But I'm, but I'm actually, in reality, not. I don't... I mean, I might be able to straighten a picture on a wall and be like, good enough, but when you're building a building... It's not good enough. You cannot eyeball it. I want it straight. And in order to do that, you have to have a fixed starting point. And I'm, I, I'm using a corner post because it's a pole barn. And then from that post, I, you take a string and you run it out tight. And then that helps everything get in a line. Because a string, when you pull it tight, it's not going to be wavy. It's going to be straight. That's called a plumb line. A plumb line is used in the beginning stages of a building when the only place it exists, when the only place that building exists is in the mind and the heart and the vision of the builder. And the plumb line is out. And what seems as small and insignificant as a few sticks stuck into the ground and string pulled tight across them is an absolutely critical step to the rest of the building because if it's off, the whole thing is off. In beginning to build and restore the temple and moving with God's people back to Jerusalem on, in taking on this mantle of leadership, in just being faithful to God and using the gifts and lineage that Zerubbabel was given by God, the Lord is going to accomplish far more than Zerubbabel could ever, ever imagine. And so just as a plumb line is vital to any building, so was Zerubbabel to the building up of God's people from this point forward. For in him, in Zerubbabel, the Lord put back on the signet ring of Davidic kingship, never to be taken off again. In him, the second temple was begun, whose walls would see the temple that could never be destroyed. In him, 19 generations later, his relative would load up his very pregnant virgin fiance on a donkey and take her to Bethlehem, the city of David, and deliver and raise God's own son. Who would have dreamed, we sing this song, who would have dreamed or ever foreseen that we could hold God in our hands, the giver of life, 
was born in the night, revealing God's glorious plans to save what? The world. And what looked, what seemed to the outside looking world looking in on the life of Zerubbabel, even if he was the best governor of all time and the best king he could possibly be, still pretty insignificant to the thought that he was, the, he was not only building the temple, but he was the actual embodiment of a plumb line to get things straight so that the Lord could build up his people, build up his temple. And the whole thing, it's just when you sit back and think about it, what a beautiful metaphor that's taking place here. As they're building second temple, if you think forward to the, to the temple that's being built now, what we would understand as the third temple, which is Jesus himself and his church, there's a very good possibility. If not for the plumb line of Zerubbabel, we would not be sitting here. So if you view the, this oracle with the eyes of the world, it's a flop. Zerubbabel didn't free God's people from the rulership of the Persians. He didn't restore the glory of Jerusalem and usher in a new era of peace and kingdom of heaven on earth. What he did do was this. When he was wrong, he repented. And then he sought to remain faithful to God and to God's people. And then he rested with his fathers. And God used him in his plan to save the world through the shed blood of Jesus Christ 20 generations later. So climb up on this ridge. Climb up on the ridge with Zerubbabel and I for a moment. And let's get your bearings a little bit. How does this apply to you? Well, if you are a young person with your whole life ahead of you, the pressure to succeed is immense. Right? Do well. Get a good job. Pay your bills. You should find what your hands and your heart loves to do and do it with all your energy and passion. Find a husband or a wife and love your spouse with full intensity. Have children. These are good things. These are good pressures. But above all, above all, what you can learn from Zerubbabel, if you want to learn a lesson of how to be useful in the hands of God, learn it from Zerubbabel. Repent when you're wrong and be faithful to God and his people because this is what makes you useful to God in his plans to save the world through Christ. Repent when you're wrong. Be faithful to God and to his people. To the old or older. Old in body, not in mind or spirit, right? Older, with most of their lives behind them. The older I get, the more I realize how many mistakes that I have made. 
You too? Yes. I become more prone to regret or even feeling like I should have done things differently. And if you share with me in that sentiment, you're probably right. You've probably sinned greatly. And you probably should have done some things differently. But you have a choice to make. You either let the pressure of that cripple you, or you repent. And from this point forward, you look to be faithful to the Lord and to his what? His people. With what he's given you. You seek to steward what you have to the glory of God because that is what makes you useful to God in his plans to save the world through Christ. And to those who have never taken Christ as Lord, you must understand this. Your inheritance is with those who will be shaken. Your inheritance is with those who will be destroyed unless you follow him. Every day is another day closer to the day that Haggai is talking about. The day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for some, that will be a glorious confession, a fulfillment of a confession already made, and it will be well with soul. And for others, that will be a very terrifying sentence to utter that Jesus Christ is Lord. You should be with us. There's no reason why not. There is no reason to tarry in lack of belief in Jesus because God is going to fulfill his purposes. He is going to shake the nations. He is going to lift up Christ. He is going to be lifted up and glorified and set as king over all things now and forever. Amen. For eternity. It's going to happen. And you have the opportunity today to take his lordship with joy and join in on the beautiful inheritance of everlasting life. How do I know this? Well, because over and over and over again, God makes promises and then he fulfills them. God makes promises and he fulfills them. If he has promised, it will be fulfilled because he is faithful. He has promised and he is faithful. Amen.